So Philippians 2, starting in verse 19, and I invite you uh, to stand for the reading of God's Word. Philippians 2, starting in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself will also be coming shortly. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, or but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Years ago, when I was 16, a sophomore in high school, I went on a mission trip to France. And uh, this particular mission trip wasn't your ordinary mission trip. It required about as little personal sacrifice as you could possibly imagine. First of all, it was to France, and who doesn't want to go to France? Uh, but second of all, it was not just to France, it was to the French Alps. And what do you do in the French Alps? You ski. You go to the French Alps to ski. And that's what we were there to do. There were a group of us who went to teach the French youth how to ski. And we were also Christians, and of course, uh, the real reason for our going was sharing the gospel with them. We'd hope, we hoped that would be a venue for them uh, to hear the gospel. Uh, but my point in, in telling this story is that I uh, went with entirely uh, selfish motives. I hadn't really given the uh, decision uh, of going on this trip to the Lord. I kind of just decided to go. And it wasn't until I was on my way over that I realized uh, that I had made this about me. Uh, and of course, I was young. There's, there's maybe reason to understand uh, why a, a young guy would want to go to France. But um, the point is, uh, this was about me. Um, and this uh, just points to uh, a reality that I think our text this morning is going to address. And that is uh, that selfishness plagues the human heart. That is uh, one, of, one of our problems. Um, and I trust that I don't need to do much convincing here. We all uh, feel this reality in our own lives, wanting to put ourselves in front, wanting to put ourselves uh, on top. Uh, and it's easy to have these self-seeking motives. Uh, even as we're doing good for others, even in ministry, we can make what we do ultimately about ourself. 
And so, uh, again, our text this morning, it gets at this condition. It's uh, one of Scripture's many antidotes to this condition. And it does so by putting before us two individuals, two men, who exemplify what it means to have the mind of Christ. And that's the basic idea I want to unfold for the next few minutes. The mind of Christ. Firstly, what is it? But then how do you obtain it? What is it? And then how do you obtain it? So firstly, what is it? Now, it's important to understand that this text isn't just an itinerary. It is that, no doubt, but Paul isn't just outlining travel plans so that the Philippians can mark their calendars. Instead, Paul is commending these two men, and he's putting them forward as examples of what it means to possess the mind of Christ, what it means uh, to be Christ-like. And he's been talking about this from 127 onwards. In chapter 1, verse 27, he writes, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he goes on to exhort them toward unity and mutual love and service. And then in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, he writes, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to unfold, and, and we just uh, read this in our, in our worship service, uh, how Jesus Christ had such a mind, a mind of selfless love and sacrifice, a mind of looking to the interest of others. And so that's why I use this phrase, the, the mind of Christ, and commentators will use that phrase to kind of sum up uh, Christ's love here. They, they say the mind of Christ because really Paul is calling believers and he's calling the church uh, toward Christ-likeness and having that same mind that Christ had. And so, Timothy and Epaphroditus then, uh, these aren't just travel plans, they stand as concrete examples of what Paul has been calling the church to, which again can be summed up in that exhortation to possess the mind of Christ. And we're going to see that to possess the mind of Christ means to possess a mind for others. That's the what. The mind of Christ is a mind for others. Now, we can't unpack all that is said about these two men. Instead, I want to uh, home in on just a couple statements in our passage. The first regards Timothy. Uh, Timothy is basically one of Paul's right-hand men. He's kind of a son figure to Paul, which our passage discusses. And he's been serving alongside Paul in gospel ministry for some time. And first, uh, the first comment I want to look at, Paul tells the church in verse 20, Speaking of Timothy, he writes, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. I want to read that again, actually. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, whenever I read this text, it's kind of a slap in the face. Paul says he's only got one guy. What do you mean you've only got one guy? Because obviously Paul has other options, and we can't be too sure who the all here is referring to. But the fact is there were others, a group of potential candidates, uh, that were available for Paul to send. 
perhaps even the same group of ministers referred to earlier in the letter in chapter 1, where he says in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from rivalry or from envy and rivalry, but others from good will. So there were others. Paul had other options, yet he says it's Timothy alone who will be genuinely concerned. And I think uh, these words are meant to confront us. They're meant to confront the Philippian church, but they're also meant to confront us today. Because what's so clear from, from this text is that one can be a Christian, and one can even be engaged in serving others, can even be engaged in the work of Christ, and yet still not be genuinely concerned for the people that are being served, or at least not more than for oneself. And I think that as we read these verses, we're, we're meant to undergo a bit of self-examination. Where am I in all this? Am I in that same group uh, seeking after my own interests, even, even as I serve others? Do I really care about people? Who is on my mind, really? Is it just me, or is it other people who I am preoccupied with? Is that really the deepest concern of my heart? I think we're meant to be asking these questions. But as if that weren't sobering enough, Timothy's example, Paul gives us another example uh, to confront us and to challenge us. And time permits us from getting into all the details regarding Epaphroditus, but it comes down to this. Here's a man who was sent by the Philippians to Paul to deliver some gift of material uh, assistance during his time in prison. And on his way, he came down with some sort of illness. And the Philippian church heard about this. They heard that he came down with this illness. And whatever it was, we know that it was bad. In fact, it was very bad. Paul tells them in verse 27, tells the Philippians that indeed he was ill near to death. Now let's pause for a second to imagine what you and I might be feeling uh, in these circumstances, of being near to death, a result of serving God, what might we feel? Anger, resentment towards God, self-pity. And yet that's not what Epaphroditus is feeling. In the middle of his illness, he's not drowning, uh, drowning in self-pity or grumbling. He's feeling concern for the Philippians. Paul writes in verse 26, he, Epaphroditus, he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. So he's ill to the point of death. He realizes that the Philippians have heard of his illness and he's concerned for them. He doesn't want them to be anxious or distressed. He's concerned for their well-being in all of this, even as he's the one suffering. Now, this is the opposite of how we're naturally hardwired to think right? To, to place ourselves first and then maybe afterwards to think of others. That's, that's what we're prone to do. I'm in the construction industry and right now I work for a gutter company, but really I'm in sales. I'm the guy who comes to your house, writes the bid and tries to sell you on a nice new set of gutters. And my boss, he had me read that classic book by Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And it's not a bad book. It's actually a pretty decent book, and I would recommend it to you. Uh, but I think in reading it, you sort of do get the sense that 
at bottom, in the end, people are just stepping stones toward us accomplishing our own goals. And here's an excerpt from the book. Uh, Carnegie writes, Of course you are interested in what you want. You are eternally interested in it, but no one else is. The rest of us are just like you. We are interested in what we want. So the only way on earth to influence other people is to talk about what they want and show them how to get it. Basically, the best way to get other people to do what you want is to frame the matter in terms of what the other person wants, but all the while you're really angling towards your own goals, your own desires. And actually, one of the chapters is shamelessly titled, Making People Glad to Do What You Want. Uh, now, that's, that's not all bad if what you want is really the good of the other person. But so often, that's not the case. Now, here are some of the goals uh, that a seminarian like myself might had. And I invite you to kind of insert your own goals, your own desires. Uh, but here are some of the goals that a seminarian might have. I want to write something. I want to get published. I want to get my name out there. I want to get my name on the map. I want to be a church planter. I want to be a great preacher. And none of these are bad desires per se, but they can be if loving others by making Christ known to them, if that's not the underlying motive. So I'm going to reframe those things. I want to write... But more than that, I want people to read about the wonderful intimacy they can have with God in prayer. I want to plant a church. But more than that, I want more people to experience going from death to life. I want to be a great preacher, or even just a good preacher. But more than that, I want people to know who Christ is and what it means that he loved them unto death. And as we begin to, <clears throat> as, excuse me, as we begin to think in terms of wanting good for others, wanting Christ's riches for ourselves, what happens is we actually begin to forget about ourselves. So possessing the, Christ, the mind of Christ means possessing a mind for others. It means others preoccupy your mind. Your heart is directed not just to, to your own life and what's happening for you, but towards others. That's the what. But if that's the what, uh, what it means to possess the mind of Christ, it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, just knowing what it is doesn't necessarily mean that you can actually possess that mind. I know what dunking a basketball is. I've seen it many times, but I still can't dunk a basketball. So how then? How do we actually come to possess the mind of Christ? Now, Timothy and Epaphroditus, these guys are models for us to imitate. But really... They're only uh, modeling another model, and that is Christ himself. And here's where we get to the how. Here's where we get to the how. Timothy and Epaphroditus were transformed and empowered by the knowledge of God's love in Christ. That's what transformed them. That's how they came to possess the mind of Christ. It was in beholding and trusting in the love that God showed to them in Christ. And it was actually the grasp of what is said about Christ earlier in chapter 2. And again, we, we, we read this in our worship service, but um, I want to read it again. It's worth reading uh, the whole of what Paul says there. Uh, and I'll start in verse 3. We read, 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. That's the instruction, in a word, to have the mind of Christ. And he continues, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, we could spend weeks unpacking all that's said here, but we're going to have to be selective. And one of the things I want to point out about Christ's love, and actually it's worth, it's worth stating that Christ's love and God's love for us, the Father's love for us in Christ, are really two sides of the same coin. Christ's love is the Father's love for you. He came into the world because God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. Christ is the ultimate expression of God's love. So I, I want to be clear about that. And Paul's words here about Christ, they open with that instruction, count others more significant than yourselves, and to look to the interests of others. That's what the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, was doing when he humbled himself and became a man. He had, just as Timothy had the Philippian church on his mind, real people, Jesus Christ had us in mind. He had real people in mind when he went to the cross. And what, part of what this means is that the Lord Jesus wasn't just selfless. It's not just that he wasn't thinking about himself. It's that he was thinking about others. You might say that he was others full or others minded. He was thinking about you. Each one of us, he was thinking about you and me. He was thinking about his people, his church, as he went to the cross. That is the mind of Christ. It's a mind for others. So Christ's love, it's not just this sort of abstract idea. It's not just that he has all this love in its heart, and it's just this force, and he can't help it. It's just overflowing, and it forces him to do this crazy thing, and he hopes that somewhere, sooner or later, someone will realize he's just a really loving guy. That's not what's happening here. Um, that's not what drove Jesus to the cross. We're talking about a love that he had for real people, including you and I sitting here today. In Ephesians, we're told that before the foundation of the world, from eternity past, God chose us in Christ to be his adopted sons. What that means is from, from all eternity, before God even created the world, he knew that he would make each one of us, and he had us in his mind. And that is, that is the foundation of redemption. He, he has a plan with real people that he intends to secure for himself, that he intends to walk in, walk in relationship with, that you and I, this, it's, we're not talking about an idea, but right now, from eternity past and now in this moment and forevermore, God has his sights set on us, each one of you. It's not something we always feel or 
experience in, in a tangible way, but it is true. That is God's word to us. Uh, and actually, there's this amazing moment uh, in Peter's sermon in Acts, and he's speaking to his fellow countrymen, and he, and he tells them, he says, you killed the author of life. It's in Acts 3, if you want to look it up. He says, you killed the author of life. This is Philippians 2, that the God who created you and knew you by name and knows everything about you and, and wrote every day of your life, he is that same God who died on your behalf. He is that same God who came with you in mind. It wasn't just a death and let's see what happens. It was a death for real people. And just to fill things out uh, a touch, Christ didn't stop at the cross, but it's an ongoing, it's an unceasing love. He always has his thoughts set on us. It's not something that's past. This is present. In uh, Hebrews, in chapter 7, we read, He, Christ, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Christ now is in heaven constantly interceding for us. And in so doing, that's, that is why our salvation is secure. It's because Christ's love for us is permanent and secure and ongoing. Um, and actually, um, I, I don't have this plan, but uh, we, were, we were in Isaiah, and uh, I just want to read what we're going to be reading next week in the Old Testament, um, because I had this text in mind as I was reading through Philippians. And I want you to uh, hear here about uh, God's particular love for his people Israel. And this is starting in uh, chapter 43, starting in chapter 1, or verse 1. But now, thus says Yahweh, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I, Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Sorry. <clears throat> bring my sons and daughters. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. I think part of what's so incredible about the love of God is that he's, he's actually thinking about us. We are actually the objects of his love. And it's, it's beholding that kind of love that changes us. This is how Timothy and Epaphroditus came to possess 
the mind of Christ. They saw the love of God in Christ becoming a man to serve us. And they saw that the Lord Jesus really loves his people. This is what it meant for Timothy uh, and Epaphroditus to possess the mind of Christ. It meant to know and possess that same love and to love people as Christ loves his people sacrificially and with the good of the other person in one's mind and heart. Brothers and sisters, the Spirit of God, through the witness of these two men, invites us this morning to examine ourselves and to see whether we possess that same love, to see whether we possess the mind of Christ. And if not, to repent and to turn again and behold that love of God in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I I pray uh, that your word to us this morning in Philippians, that this word about Timothy and Epaphroditus and their example of possessing the mind of Christ, that the knowledge of of Christ's love for us, Lord, that that these things would change us. Lord, that that we would realize that in what Christ did for us, we, we have everything we could ever need. Lord, and that we'd be free to consider the interests of others, that we would have a mind for others, Lord. Place uh, a real love in our hearts uh, for the people whom you call us to love. God, I, I pray uh, that we would be a church that mirrors the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.